Welcome to Winning at Work. I'm your host, Tony Moore. I appreciate you guys joining us every week to listen to our esteemed guests from the food and beverage world. Every week I have um, an executive come in that really help us learn more about not just their business, but how they're winning at work. They all have superpowers. They're all overcoming challenges in their company, in the industry, and we're creating a community I want you to look for us on Facebook because we're out, we are building a food and beverage community there where we can all connect together, network, have a little fellowship, uh, do some networking, and kind of share the best ideas that are out there to help us all just perform better at work. And, and that's the focus of this podcast. It's kind of a learning and development angle. And today I'm very pleased to introduce to everybody Brett Getzel. He's the vice president of food service sales at Seaboard Foods. And Brett, welcome into the program today, sir. Good morning, Tony. It's my pleasure to be with you today. Yeah, I am so glad we finally got our our schedules connected. We're both very busy, and I know you guys are extremely busy. When we talked before the podcast, you were, you told me you guys were selling everything you have and that phrase really hit me. You know that is a uh, it's a it's a great problem to have. And bef- you know before we get into our our real theme, the you know the real meat of our discussion, where you're going to help us, you know, kind of understand how you sell into a mature market. I want you to give everybody an overview of Seaboard Foods because on the surface, people just might think Seaboard Foods is a seafood company, but they would be wrong. That's a very interesting segue. When I first came to the company over 20 years ago, I think I spent the first two years of my job literally networking with food service distributors and food service operators and dispelling that myth that you just raised right there. We had a period in our company where we actually sold poultry, and we had to basically dispel that one. And then with a name like Seaboard Foods, which speaks to our heritage and our lineage, we had to uh, build a brand identity as a pork supplier, which is what we do today. So Seaboard Foods, the company that I'm associated with, is considered an international mid-cap agribusiness company. So everything that we do for the most part has its history or its foundation in in the commodities area, whether it's grain, whether it's protein, uh, international shipping. Uh, We do some things in, in international energy generation as well as overseas trading. Uh, so everything that we do is, is somewhat ag-based and somewhat commodity-based. And commodity by its the very definition just connotes extremely large margins at razor th- or extremely large volumes rather at razor thin margins. Yeah, and when you had said you were selling everything you had, I think that was really the genesis of us wanting to have this theme on you know how do you sell into a, a mature market? How do you compete when you're viewed as you know? Um, when you're viewed as a commodity. But before we get into that, tell us a little bit more about uh, Seaboard, particularly, you know, culture or, you know, kind of trends that you're seeing kind of within the company. What, you know, what's happening in the world of pork? So, yeah, let's talk about Seaboard and then we'll talk a little bit about pork. Seaboard is uh, 103 years old this year. So been around, uh, had that century anniversary, if you will, uh, and a very, very mature company. And, and, uh, you know, obviously very, very uh, financially sound, uh, 
We're publicly traded on the Amex, so the stock ticker symbol is SEBC Board. Uh, however, 77% of the stock is owned by the founding family. So we like to make the statement, Tony, that we're publicly traded but very closely held. And uh, with that family association, it's somewhat like a family office in that we're, we're in this thing for the long term and really look take a very long-term view of how we approach things. From from a cultural standpoint, you know, when you're a company that's been around that long, you obviously have to, re, to re-energize and refill that talent pipeline. So we're always constantly looking for the talent. As you know, yeah, we, we, we have folks within the company who, like myself, 20-plus years, and there's a few others that are even longer, but we do spend quite a bit of time uh, working with that next generation of leaders, that next generation of talent. And ironically, I was just on a call yesterday where we started to build the framework for uh, our next MT program and how we're going to recruit uh, this next generation of, of college graduates. As it relates to the pork industry specifically, you know, uh, protein, uh, when we had the pandemic, just exploded. Uh, it, I, I always laugh right now to think of, of why that is because our market share didn't really change and, and I, I kind of built this premise on my own, Tony. It's interesting. But think about you and I, right? If you and I go out to breakfast this morning and we order uh, hand, uh, pancakes and bacon and eggs, you get two strips of bacon on your plate and I get two strips of bacon on my plate. And we go home and that's considered a, a two, two dining away from home events. If you and I eat breakfast together this Saturday, and again, I cook bacon for you, there's a high probability, Tony, that I'm going to cook the entire one-pound pack of Elboard bacon that I got at the grocery store and you're going to eat a half a pound and I'm going to eat a half a pound. So it's uh, it's very interesting how this dining uh, dining out, uh, at home, eating at home has, has really shifted the balance of how, the, how much volume we're moving. So consumers, at least today, uh, due to some government stimulus and due to some increases in wages, have a tremendous amount of liquidity and are spending that in uh, in food consumption, which in my world is is a good thing for our business, of course. Yeah, I think the retail sales have really spiked, particularly at the grocery store level. And um, I'd have to be pretty hungry to eat a full half pound of bacon, although I love it. That'd take – I'd have to be pretty <laughs> – I might have had to come off the treadmill <laughs> to help you take out a full pound. Well, and think about this, too. If that's an invite, if that's an invite, I mean, I you know, I can get up there to Kansas. <laughs> You're always welcome, my friend. In fact, interestingly enough, this weekend we're hosting uh, the entire world for the American Roll Barbecue, which is the granddaddy of barbecue competitions. So Kansas City will be inundated with guests and uh, some of the best barbecue competitors and cookers across the world, actually. So, uh, but you know, think about that portion control aspect to kind of tie into what we started with. Uh, you know, and let's just use hamburger for example. You go out to McDonald's and you get the quarter pounder, right? Air quotes, quarter pounder. Uh, and then you say to yourself, if you make hamburgers in your backyard, do you have a quarter pound? You probably eat more than that. Uh, and it's just, it's just human nature, right? And I think it explains some of the disparity in this shift through, from food service purchasing to retail purchasing and how folks are consuming more given that they're eating at home versus eating out. Yeah, I can't make a quarter pounder at home. I mean, it's... The Tony Burger that makes it on the grill is much bigger, and I'm always getting complaints to shrink them down, but you just can't. You know, you, it is, it's hard to control those portions. What other trends, though, are we seeing in pork? And perhaps you could also touch on some of the external factors or other kind of you know, competing interests that you know, the, the pork industry is watching. 
you know, there, there's definitely a big wave towards sustainability and what we're doing in terms of the entire supply chain, Tony. Uh, you know, gone are the days when I just simply deliver a box of product to an operator or an end user and they're satisfied with that. There's definitely an interest on the part of the operator to be able to tell a story about the entire supply chain and where that port came from how the animals were raised, how they were treated, you know, what the CSR component of the, of the company that provided that was, what we're doing in the community, what we're doing for employees, what we're doing for the environment. So it's a much broader uh, sales value proposition than just simply saying, hey, I'm going to give you some product at a price. I think the burden on the part of the supplier and the manufacturer is, is much more elaborate than probably what it was just five or 10 years ago. And I, I don't really see that changing uh you know we're in this this difficult and challenging position where we have to both compete domestically uh where, where that story is important but then also to compete on the global stage within the pork industry specifically we export about 26 27 percent it'll ebb and flow from year to year of our total production and in order for us to compete internationally with all the other countries that have a large footprint in the pork production space, it's important that we're cost competitive. So we're constantly in this balancing act, Tony, of trying to balance the wants and needs of the domestic marketplace against the cost pressures that we face in the international space. Yeah, America is definitely moving in that you know food forward, I think, trend and you've just touched on it sustainability looking at the supply chain looking at the value you know all the way down a little more transparency that does put a bigger burden on the operator and on the the manufacturer and, and the processors to just kind of show the consumer you know where everything is coming from because you know the the good for you trend you can't really call it a trend anymore it's it's pretty much here yeah i think it's i think it's here to stay and it's probably gaining traction uh well, and the challenge, obviously, is providing protein to a growing population, but still maintaining the value. Uh, you know, no question of the three primary protein species, uh, poultry, pork, and beef, that pork is the value play. Uh, you know, there's an ethnic preference as it relates to certain ethnic sections, but I think pork has gone definitely more mainstream, and people have seen the value that it provides, and it's a rich protein source. So we're starting to see the the impact of the of what we call the plant-based meat alternatives and the cellulosic-based proteins. Uh, seafood, obviously, is making a big play. But you're seeing more and more and more where people are just searching out and seeking uh, sources of protein and then obviously doing the price-value relationship to try to determine exactly where their best value is. Well, that really kind of leads us into our primary theme, and that is, you know, how do you sell into this mature market? Because as you say, you know, you, you've got this domestic expectation versus the international expectation. So let's focus on selling in the domestic space here in America, how you go about approaching selling and working with, is it, so is it distributors or, you know, I guess maybe set that up too, is kind of how do you deliver your product to market? Does it just leave from the farms into processing and the processors take it out? Just kind of walk us through that, that process as well. Yeah, we can go through that entire value chain. So we actually go all the way back to the genetic base. So when we look at differentiating one supplier's product from another, we go all the way back to genetics. So we'll establish the genetic strain that gives us the, the key KPIs that we're looking for in terms of performance. That genetic strain obviously goes into the breeding herd. 
Uh, the breeding herd is where we produce and grow the animals. The animals are then processed in state-of-the-art facilities. And then from there, we start to really segment that finished product based on where it has best value and the best opportunity, whether it's in the food service channel, the retail channel. Uh, we have a green meats or further processor, kind of a B2B industrial space. And then lastly, international. So each one of those markets sells a very unique product mix based on their customers' wants and needs. But specifically to the food service channel, Tony, we talk about how do we get the product ultimately to the guest or to the consumer. And, and really we have what we call two points of delivery. The first one is going to be the distributor and, and we have national broadliners. We have regional, uh, we call super regional distributors. And then there's a kind of a network of independence and, and those three layers of distribution is really how we move product throughout that, that marketplace. And ultimately all of that product makes its way to food service operators and entrepreneurs who are going to create some fascinating guest experience with our product as a component within that, uh, that dish. So and in our world, what we do is we build a relationship first with that operator that kind of creates the demand or the pull that gives the distributor a reason really to do business with us. So uh, it, it, we almost have, the way we look at it, Tony, we almost have to sell the product twice. We have to sell it to the operator and then they in turn create the demand. So then we sell it to the distributor, but ultimately that operator partners with us as a supplier to create that fascinating uh, and intriguing guest experience. So I know many food companies will have uh, a culinary department there to introduce and show you know, new ways to prepare the food or the dish. Um, where does that component come in? Does that come on the operator or distributor side or, or, or none of the above? A little bit of both, but I would probably emphasize that aspect of selling more with the operator. In, in the business, we use the terms uh, solution selling. And, you know, we've, I've trained so many people over the years that I've been in the business. And what you find is that I can present a, a cut, uh, uh, a different piece of meat, if you want to think of it that way. But if I don't create a solution, if I don't create a use for it, if I don't create demand, it just is that. It's just simply a piece of meat. And uh, and it's very difficult to kind of connect and make the leap from that piece of meat to that finished plated entree. Exactly. That's what I was right thinking. After. Yep, exactly. And, and, and that's happening on, on the operator side. So, so it really, it you're really selling really then into two markets, well, two channels, or, you know, into your operator and then to your distributor. So, tell us about this technique, this strategy. You've obviously been involved in, you know, training salespeople. So that's what I think we really want to hear today is, um, you know, how are you building those relationships with the operators? Yeah, great question. So, uh, and I think where we started when we first met one another, we started talking about this concept of reciprocity. And and I shared with you, you know, how I I, I read and I and I read extensively both for education, personal development, a little bit about a little bit about recreation, but more of it's about personal development. And I was interviewing a gentleman uh, for a job I had open, and and I, I always ask him my interview questions. Tony, what books are you reading, or what's on your reading list? What maybe have you read recently? And he offered me a, a series of books called The Go-Giver. And I read the books and they were you know, pretty light in terms of, of depth and content, but what they illustrated was this concept of reciprocity. And, uh, and I started to really reinforce this with, with my team. And it was this idea that when I call you as the, the prospect or the target or the client, uh, if I call you with an ask, right, I, I'm, I'm really demanding something from you and I really haven't created 
uh, a sense of reciprocity. And then I read just recently a book called Influence, The Power of Persuasion by Dr. Robert Cialdini. And uh, there's a whole section in the book about this, the concept of reciprocity. And it was interesting to see two different authors actually emphasize the same concept. So let's unpackage that, right? So re reciprocity, by definition, creates a sense of obligation. And, and there were several illustrations in Dr. Cialdini's book about you know how how we as consumers get caught in this, and you think, and I don't know if you're a Costco person or not. We have Costco. oh yeah, yeah. Well, how many times have you went to Costco on a Saturday and there's there's somebody giving a demo, and uh, you know you walk up there and you 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 sample the product that the lady or the the gentleman is serving, and then you buy the product and you get home and you look at the product and you say, now why did I buy this? I, I don't even like this product. I don't have a use for it. I don't have a need. This isn't even something that I eat. And, and the studies would tell you that it wasn't that you thought the product was so appealing in the store, but because these, this sample demo person created a sense of obligation, you felt obligated as the consumer to return their favor. And, and the only way you could do that was by buying the product. And we see this played out in, you know, the, the one that they illustrated in the book was the, the candy stores, right? Where you walk in and the first thing they do is hand you a piece of fudge and then ultimately you buy something. And, and the studies would show that most people don't buy the product that they sampled. They end up buying something else because they, they had this sense of obligation, right? And they, they felt they needed to fulfill the obligation and kind of balance the scales, if they will. So let's fast forward to how this applies to our world. And it's this idea that I train our sales folks to say, hey, wouldn't it be unique if you called a customer and didn't ask for the order? Wouldn't it be unique if you called the customer and just said, hey, I, I've got some market intelligence. I've got a new product. Uh, I've got some information. I've got something that I want to share with you. And you conclude that call without ever asking for the order. And I know salespeople by very definition are always trained to close and always trained to ask for the order. And I think we're, we're focusing on the mature market and that's kind of where this ties in. So, but creating this sense of obligation and once, and I, I was, the other thing that we talk about, you know, there's that common theme at Starbucks about pay it forward. We'll pay it forward. It's just another version of reciprocity. And as, as the team started to pick up on this theme, it was very interesting how they would share their success stories of saying, hey, I planted the seed and two, three weeks later, the account came back and placed the order or bought this new item or put my item on the menu. And, and obviously, when you have success, it just breeds more success. And once people started to kind of latch on to this idea of reciprocity, it was very interesting to see how powerful it was. It is human nature. You're right. I mean, when you're, when you are given something, when someone gives of themselves to you, you just kind of feel like you want to give something back to them. Yeah, I, I truly agree. I mean, as seeing it demonstrated and, and obviously played out time and time again and seeing, oh my gosh, this is really simple, but it's extremely powerful. And How do you do that though, without kind of telegraphing that that's your intent or do you really just kind of have to reprogram yourself to be a giver and kind of operate from a kind of maybe a different, you know, mindset? Well, I think it goes back to determining how many relationships can you truly have, right? And if you look at your, your, your book of business, your book of contacts, your, your, your buyers, and you start to look at all the people in your Rolodex, and I, I use myself as an example, I'm looking at my outlook right now, and I have 7,000 different contacts in my contact list, you know, my, my contact section of Outlook. And you ask yourself, do I really have 7,000 relationships? Yeah, probably not. 
So then you start to say, well, if, if I only have engagement with somebody once a month, is that a relationship? Yeah, maybe. If I have a, if I have an engagement with somebody once a year, is that a relationship? It's maybe transactional, but it's not truly a relationship. And so then you start to really analyze the frequency with which you touch these folks and the people that you typically touch the most often are the folks that obviously bring, bring the most value, whether you're bringing value to them or they're bringing value to you, but there's value creation. There's no question about it. So I think the key is to really look at where you're spending your time. And if you analyze where you're spending your time, it'll be very clear to you who's really bringing value in the relationship. And I would imagine if there are people that you want to establish a relationship with and you look at the frequency and you realize I'm not engaging with them enough. It actually could provide you a roadmap that you do need to increase the rapidity of which you circle back and, you know, work with these potential prospects and or clients. But then it puts the emphasis on, in my opinion, the actual content, right? You've got, you, I, I teach my salespeople never, just call people and just ask, how is it going? Or that's just so, you know, low level. It's, it's, you're not thinking, you're not adding value. It's, it's a, just a waste of time. It's just, it's off the table. You cannot approach people like that. That's, you know, gone are those days. So where do people go? What would you suggest for someone to kind of ramp up, you know, this, uh, kind of educational, storefront that, you know, you kind of have to provide to people? No, I think it's a, it's a great question, actually. I, I think we shared in our initial, uh, our, our kind of our, our pregame for this, I, I, I speak at, at the university quite a bit, and, and one of the areas that I speak on is mentorship. And uh, when, I, when I talk about mentorship, often the questions will always be about me, not me personally, but the, the person, the student asking the question, and how can I get this, and how do I find a mentor, and how do I get that? And, and what I always tell the students is I say, you have to create that sense of obligation. And, and they look at me as if I'm you know, from Mars, as if I'm crazy. And, and I explain to them, you've got to put in the work, whether it's research, whether it's industry reading, whether it's, it's you know, analyzing the financials, you know, analyzing your competitors, analyzing the marketplace, analyzing the customers. But you're really looking for that nugget that says, you know what? I'm bringing something to you that you didn't find on your own. I, I'm, I'm filling in the gaps and I, we don't have time on this call, but the illustration that I always use is the wall street with uh, Gordon Gecko and Bud Fox. And, and that's a movie from 1987. But the bottom line was, is that Bud Fox created a sense of reciprocity in Gordon Gecko. And from there, the relationship took off. But your original question was, how do you do that? Right. And it's really it, the devil's in the details. You have to put in the work to find those things that bring value to your target, whether it's your boss, whether it's your customer, a peer, whatever the case it is, but it requires effort and energy. These aren't things that are just gonna come to you in the normal course of a day. They require that additional and extraordinary effort. And when you look at the overachievers, and we can use you know EQ, IQ, whatever metric you like to use, but there are those rare, rare, rare few that are willing to change their behavior and do something different and put in the extraordinary effort and energy required. And those are the folks that will rise above the rest of the crowd. Well, and that's what winning at work is all about. This is the learning and development podcast for food and beverage professionals. And of course, other professionals, I'm sure listen to this, you know, outside of that, these, these uh, qualities, these traits, these ideas kind of transcend industry. 
But when you talk about diving that deep and being that specific, there is a, a, a good basis then to realize you really need to niche in your business and to provide this kind of value, right? Because if you're selling to a broad market, then, you know, where do you choose to dive deep and bring this information? I, I'm just thinking um, this is one of those advantages of niching down, right? When you niche down, you become the expert. So then you what? do have this information. Yeah, I think it's a great point, and, and, you, and you're, you're kind of digging into it and saying, hey, how does this happen? And intuitively, I'm sure the listeners are saying, hey, I need to shut the door to my office or my home office, wherever I'm at, and I just need to get on the computer and start digging. And I would say, you know what, let's rethink that, and, and let's just play this out. We'll use a case study, right? Uh, and, and you start to say, well, well, how, how does my normal life happen, right? Uh, I go to work and I've got my network of, of, of people that I interact with, whether they're customers or whether they're coworkers, peers. You know, I, we can go horizontal, vertical. We can use whatever terms we like. But I've got my my circle of circle of influence there at work. And then I maybe look personally and say, okay, who's my friend group? You know, my wife, maybe my my church group, whatever the case may be. But I've got this this defined level of people, this defined group that I interact with on a regular basis, and I'm comfortable. And and you know, I, I like to use the term: we never want to be comfortable. We should always be comfortable being uncomfortable. And if we find ourselves really getting into an area of comfort that tells us that we're probably not growing or not learning. And again, I go back to this idea. It's this rare group of folks that says, Hey, you know what? Good things are going to happen when I network, right? When I get outside my, my bubble, when I, when I break that, that circle and I go meet new people, I go interact with other, other professionals, whether it's trade groups, whether it's clubs, whether it's associations, you know, sometimes it may just be picking up the phone and calling somebody that you read about or you saw on the internet Maybe you want to meet them uh, socially, professionally, whatever the case may be. But in my line of work, it's amazing. I mean, how many calls I make to people. And sometimes I'll have a soft intro from somebody that I know. I'll use my network to say, hey, I saw this guy and I read about it. Or I read about his company. And I'd really like to get to know him, uh, you know. Maybe, maybe my company's interested in buying a product from them. Maybe my company's interested in selling them. Uh, maybe I've got a, a, a personal interest in maybe getting to know somebody or something. But the bottom line that I'm trying to make here is the fact that, you know, the good things, the magic happens when we get outside of our comfort zone and interact with people that we don't interact with on our normal day to day. And, and I go back to when I did my, MBA at Rockhurst University here in Kansas City, the amount of learning and the new thinking that I acquired from interacting with people that I didn't normally know. And it, and it really was beyond the faculty. I mean, there was people in my classes, in my cohort that uh, were from different industries and different lines of work. But because they brought a fresh new way of thinking and looking at the world, it caused me to really rethink some assumptions and some norms that I had. And, and I've got young, young people in my family that are just getting out of college, my kids, and I'm constantly preaching to them the same thing to, hey, you know what, you've got to expand your network of contacts and associations because the, the best best things are going to happen outside of the current friend group that you have. You know, it's that classic idea and, you know, Bill Gates didn't coin it, but I think it's on the internet. It's, it's credited with him of never being the smartest person in the room. And if you find yourself in a situation where you are the smartest person in the room, you probably need to go to a different room. I love that. You got to break out of the status quo and really challenge yourself to be uncomfortable. And, you know, I've, I've just taken a page full of notes and I wish we did have more time to get into this, Brett, because I think you, 
think you're living it. I think you're, you're obviously you're instilling that in into your sales people. And I, I hope, you know, all the sales leaders that are listening to this can um, begin to figure out what it means for them and their sales organization or marketing organization to become, you know, that of one of reciprocity and or just creating an obligation. And I think you have to do it in your own unique way. It can't be forced. You know, you just have to become a giver. You know, um, as Paul Pendergast said, he was one of my previous guests, you know, he wanted to be an information purveyor. So that's how he sold. You know, he always wanted to be bringing new information. So this is a, a tried and true method, and I don't think it can be, uh, I, you know, explained enough. I mean, I think there's a, it's, there's a lot of value in hearing this, you know, it, from your perspective. Well, I, I think the way you really look at it, and I love cliches because they just kind of reinforce the obvious, but we like to say within the framework of our business that the results of the presentation are a function of the preparation. And if, and you asked how these things happen, and I just, you know, Paul Pendergast, you just mentioned there, conveyor of information, the, the information that he's conveying and the value that he's bringing within that exchange with the the customer, it didn't happen off the cuff. I mean, there was hours and hours, maybe even days and weeks of preparation that went into that successful information transformation that you're talking about. So the, again, the, the presentation, the results of the presentation are only as good as the value and the effort that went into the preparation. Well, as we move into our kind of final segments here on winning at work, have you given any thought to your superpower, what it is that you do exceptionally well? That, and you can't say reciprocity. That's off the, that's, <laughs> that's off the table. Um, have you given any thought to that? You know, I, I really have. And, and it's really where you find your energy, right? It's one of the things that you really find that really energize you as a person. And, and I've, I've reflected on that quite a bit. And, and there's two parts to this. And it's really, and I don't remember who coined this, but it's this idea of, of when you become a leader, you stop worrying about yourself and all of your effort and energy is focused on others. And I think that is really kind of that sweet spot for me. And it's a combination of who are the others, really. You have to define who are the downstream stakeholders. And, and obviously, I've got my customers. When and, and I can only win if my customers win. So the fact that it's, it's all about me and none about them, that really doesn't work. And when you have that pivot in your mindset to saying, hey, if, if I do something where my customers win, ultimately I'm going to receive, and I'm not talking about reciprocity, right? I'm talking about if they develop a dish, an entree, uh, a menu that brings value and brings guests in, you know what? They win and I win. So it's this idea of how I do that. But then really the other side of that is you look at everybody that you interact with. And I'm thinking specifically of my team and, and the development of those team members is just so, so important. And, and, not to say if the team members are successful, sure, I'm successful because my numbers are their numbers. It doesn't work any other way. But you start to really look at what these how these people evolve. And we always say you either train them up or you train them out. And I, whether you train them out or you push them out. But the bottom line is, as a leader, you know, your real responsibility is to make those around you, whether horizontally or vertically, but make them better, right? Make the team better. And that's really where I've kind of dug in and just said, hey, if I've got this team member who's struggling in this certain process, whether it's closing, whether it's prospecting, targeting, managing their pipeline, value creation, communication, you can go on and on and on with all the different 
different skill sets which we require of our team. How can I help them? And whether it's, uh, and maybe I don't even have that skill. I, I found that that, you know, we call it the man in the mirror moment, right? I, I may not have everything in the tool bag that I need, but I have to be uh, transparent enough to go out and find those skills, acquire those skills, you know, take on that that uh, that ability such that I can then convey that to my my team. So, but that superpower is that ability. And I, I'm a big reader, as you know. And there was a, a, a email that was written. I, I won't quote the author, but it talked about aspiration versus inspiration and the ability to be able to inspire your team to be able to do more than they thought they could do, and to be able to convey them skills and abilities and be able to impart that talent on them. I think those are the things that really give me the superpower. And when you get to the point where you celebrate others' victories more than you celebrate your own, I think you're there. Uh, and, and I think I, and I, I look at emotional maturity and emotional intelligence, and I harken back to when I was a much younger person, maybe not quite as mature. And I thought, you know what, it was all about me. If I, if I do well, you know, good things will happen. And, and as you get older and more, a little bit more wise, maybe you start to realize that, you know what, I, I find a lot more validation and a lot more joy when my teammates win and when they, and I like to celebrate their victories with them. Yeah, that's a great way to finish up that, that superpower segment, because it's, it is, you know, finding uh, joy and success in other people's accomplishments. And, you know, that's, it, that is a sign of maturity. You know, we experience that at work. We experience that at home with our kids. Uh, you mentioned you've got two, two younger folks that are, you know, getting ready to leave college. So you're trying to successfully launch them as we say. <laughs> so um, well, as we get into our final discussion, which is basically anything about talent, um, I think you've already helped a hiring leader actually with a lot of your your philosophy. I, I think there's a lot of ways that a hiring leader can benefit from what you've already said. But specifically, is there an idea that you'd like to share to to help a hiring leader when they're faced with, say, hiring a salesperson? Well, I, I, th I think and we, we're in that mode right now because we're constantly looking to attract uh, young talent to our organization. And we really had to look inward rather than looking outward. And what I mean by that is what is our value proposition as, as an employer? And, and, and granted, pay is part of it. But once you hire that individual, you know, you go through that, that honeymoon phase, you know, that's when you really understand what you're offering as an employer. And, and it, we talk a lot about culture and things of that nature, but I think opportunity is probably in creating opportunity. More importantly, is really what you're talking about. Because let, let's be honest, I mean, you're either going to hire a person out of college and train them and develop them, or you're going to you know poach them from the competition or maybe from a from an adjacent industry. So you have to be mindful on on both stakes to say, hey. You know, if the competition's coming after my talent, uh, what am I doing to retain them? And, and I think it goes far and above and beyond just simple compensation. We look at what, what we're doing with, and there's always folks that you that maybe you don't want to hang on to as much as others, but there's that core group of people that are young and bright and have potential. And you just look at them and you say, am I communicating to them? Am I giving them good feedback? Am I creating opportunity? Uh, and, and what am I doing to develop them? And, and I've really taken on a lot within my company in the, in the role of learning and development to make sure that we have the framework of, of a good learning and development program. And I, I look at downstream as it relates to my customers, particularly these operators. And you say, well, you know, what can I offer somebody? Well, 
you know, you think about that. You've got front of the house, back of the house. What am I doing to develop that line chef? And, and maybe it was somebody who came in and they started as a dishwasher and then they go to prep and they go to sous chef and maybe they go to, to F and B manager. I mean, there's all kinds of different roles, but as an owner, you know, you have to assume that you've probably done all of those things and you identify that talent. And the more you can do to, to, to allow them to develop, to mature, to grow, I think the likelihood that they stay with your organization longer is probably much, much higher. You know, in the current environment, Tony, I don't know that a lot of people stay with companies 30 and 40 years the way that they used to. I've been blessed to have a great run at Seaboard, and let's hope it continues. But uh, let's be honest. I mean, if you can hang on to good talent, I always tell people five to seven years, I think that's a great run. And I, I make the comment to everybody on my team, I say, you know, you may be with me five years, 10 years, seven years, whatever it is. But what I can tell you is over that time, I'm going to make you better. And that's my promise to you. If you stay with me, that I will make you better. Uh, you know, whether you stay longer, that's really up to you. But my commitment and my promise is to make you better. And I think if you live that, you know, if you really, if you, if you really personify that theme and you reinforce that with your team, you know, everybody, you want to see all of your team be successful. And even though they may not work, on your team forever. Like I said, I've been with the company a long time and, and have trained a lot of folks that have went on to other opportunities. It's always gratifying as a leader to look back and say, you know what? I played a role in that person's development or I played a role in their training and their education. And, you know, now they're a, a director or they're a vice president or they're a regional manager. And you can really take a lot of a solace in saying, you know what? I contributed to that individual's success. Yeah. I think there are two areas of influence when you're talking about retention and keeping employees engaged. You've got the overall uh, company culture, the uh, interaction, the feedback that they might get from the executives. And that's going to also include, you know, does the company give back to the environment or to the community? You know, kind of what's happening out there, kind of separate from them. Maybe they can interact and and connect with that some, but then it's truly just that relationship within their team uh, and with their direct report, you know, up or down, that's really what creates that, that connectivity. So I couldn't agree with you more. If you're, if a company is having a struggle with turnover, look at the manager, look at the director. It's probably happening somewhere right around kind of close to the manager. That person's probably not doing all they can. And, if that person is doing all they can, then you may just have a toxic environment overall. And that's a corporate issue, right? And the board has to get involved and kind of make those kind of changes. So you've kind of got those two different playing fields that I think you have to deal with when we're talking about retention. Well, Brett, this has been, this has been great. I kind of feel like we could probably have a a secondary session at some point and go a little bit deeper because your expertise, your training into you know, salespeople and understanding all the different aspects of what a salesperson needs to do to be successful and how to train them, I think could be a great, you know, follow on session for us at some point. But I think for now, I think we've, we've gotten a great message across or a through reciprocity, how to create that sense of obligation, being a purveyor of information, really taking it upon yourself to educate and educate your market is uh, what separates you and helps you compete in a mature market. Tony, I really enjoyed our time together today. I, I'm doing this in my home office, and I've got just a library of books around me. And one of the books that's right in front of me is actually Jack Wells, Straight from the Gut. And as we were talking about retention and, and culture and, and an organization, you know, Jack was a big fan of, you know, 
uh, basically turning the bottom 10% of your organization. And there's so many things that, that he did well and that I'm a big fan of. And I got to tell you, that's not one of them. Uh, you know, I think we owe it to ourselves as hiring managers to do a good job on the front end. And as I was talking about this meeting that we had just yesterday, one of the comments that I made to the folks that were on the audience is I said, you look at our retention and lack of turnover. And I think it speaks to the, the processes and the controls and the effort and energy that we put into getting it right on the front end. And, and I, you know, contrary to Mr. Welch, no disrespect, you know, if you find that you've got to churn the bottom 10%, I would probably look further up the process to your hiring process to determine whether you're getting it right at that point and maybe alleviate the need for uh, churning that bottom 10%. But I, I'm always available, Tony, and, and I think uh, anytime we can bring value for one another, whether it's your audience or whether it's you to me or me to you, uh, I'm always available and open for, uh, for whatever you need, my friend. Uh, I appreciate that, Brett. It's been great to get to know you a little bit more. You guys enjoy that uh, barbecue festival out there in Kansas City. I I kind of feel like I need to drive up there. I feel like I just need to like fast for three days and then just go up there and have the time of my life. But if I don't do that, if I don't see you up there, we will see you again soon on the Winning at Work podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brett. You're very welcome, Tony. All the best to you and your audience.